You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChampaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Curtain up, theater people. Welcome to your program is your ticket. My name is Sean Chandler, and I'll be your host. Your program is your ticket is a discussion of smaller theater works and the people and organizations that make it happen. As many of you know, your program is your ticket is a helpful system where your program is literally your ticket to get into the theater in smaller, more intimate productions. It's these works we like to highlight, and it's our goal on this show to feature as many of these productions as possible while still discussing the biggies. Today's show is the continuation of a new series called Act Two Places. I'm bringing on a series of guests to discuss how COVID-19 affected them and their organizations. As you all know, we've been hit hard with a complete, hopefully temporary, change of lifestyle and business systems during this pandemic, and theater definitely wasn't spared. In fact, theater has undergone one of its biggest shifts, if not the biggest shift in modern history of theater. This series gives theater folks an opportunity to discuss the effects of this shift on them and their organizations. My guests on today's show are the anthropologists located here in New York City. Fans of the podcast probably recognize them as one of my regular and favorite guests, most notably with episodes featuring their phenomenal show, Artemisia's Intent, which I discovered when I interviewed them for their performance in the 2018 Frigid Fest, where they won the award for Best Solo Drama. Yay! Well, they're back to enlighten us on how their theater company is handling the COVID-19 crisis and their plans for reemergence. So let's bring them on. Hi, anthropologist, and welcome to your program is your ticket. Hi. Hello. Hi. Thank Hello. you so much for having us, Sean. It's my pleasure. I'm glad you're here to en- enlighten this sort of a dreary day outside. It's yeah. In New York, it's just it's it, it feels like it should be freezing cold, but I think that's but then you walk out into the humidity and you're mm-hmm. essentially synonymous to, to swimming. So um, let's have each of you introduce yourselves and tell us your function with the anthropologist team. We'll start with, uh, who should we start with here? Melissa, go. Okay. Hi, I'm Melissa. Hi. Melissa Machito, she, her. I'm the founding artistic director of the anthropologists. Uh, and I'm calling in to this Zoom from Lenape land, also known as Northern Manhattan. Uh, I, for the, the podcast listeners, I'm a white woman with dark curly hair that is trying to be tamed by a botanical headband. Uh, and I have a pink shirt on. Cool. 
Okay. And it's really difficult for me to say who's next because your lineup on Zoom is different on every single screen. It's always different. Um, you know, I, we'll do a, we'll do a pass along. I'm going to pass it to the person next to me, which happens to be Mariah. Hi, Mariah. Hi, uh, I'm Mariah Frida, joined by my toddler Shiloh. So excuse him if you hear him. Um, I am the artistic associate with the anthropologists, and um, I've been working with the company since 2012. And for the listeners at home, I am a white woman with brown hair. Um, Italian American uh, background and um, you know just in my sweatpants on the bottom and nice shirt on the top <laughs> now I believe the first time I interviewed you you were pregnant with Shiloh right that I think so it was, dur- it was during Bridget accurate. <laughs> that, yeah. that seems accurate yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's true yes he's, oh, he's done a lot of performing from inside the womb, this one. <laughs> yeah, and, and a very, uh, very physical performance, too, that was. And I saw totally. that was, you know, that was monumental in my mind. Mm-hmm. I loved it. Okay, Melissa, tell us who's next. Let's go to Alexandra. Okay, cool. Alexandra? Hi, I'm Alexandra. I am working from the unceded land of the Lenape and the Canarsie or Brooklyn. And I am the creative partner of programming and partnerships um, where I work with the team to try and build deeper organic partnerships with other um other theater companies, as well as organizations beyond the theater and beyond the arts world. Groovy. Okay. I, I think all we have left is Marissa. Marissa, can you give us an introduction, please? Yeah, sure. Hi, I'm Marissa Joyce Stamps. I use she, her pronouns. Today, I'm honoring Muncie Lenape and Rockaway Lands, which is here in Valley Street, Long Island. Um, part of the anthropologist, I'm a communications partner and actor in the ensemble, and I've been with Anthro since spring 2019, and I've been loving it ever since. I am a Black Haitian American woman rocking my Black Afro and Crescent Moon hoops with a navy sweater. Excellent. Uh, just a couple programming notes. Um, the Artemisia's Intent episodes are number 52, which I believe is the frigid interview and that's combined with a a couple other interviews because I was doing very, very fast. I think I interviewed something like 36 shows in two days. That was crazy. And also episode 66, which was uh, a longer episode. And um, that was for, I believe either an independent production or uh, that you were about to go on tour. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. You helped us launch our, our touring. Mariah, do you remember we were either going to Providence, Rhode Island, or Scranton, Pennsylvania? Providence. Providence. Yeah. Very cool. How did that go? 
It was great. We had so much fun, you know, being able to bring that show to new audiences. It definitely fulfilled a long held dream of mine to tour our work. Uh, and we had built that show uh, very specifically to fit in the back of a CRV. Uh, so that we could go anywhere within driving distance. For me, Providence was really special because when I graduated college, my first professional internship was with Trinity Rep. Um, so I got to kind of go back to my old stomping grounds and, and reconnect with some of the people and relationships that I had built there. Got to share my work with my mentor from that time there, which was really special. Um, so yeah, it was fun. And it was close enough for my family to come see the show. And one more important tidbit, which is that's where we met Tess, our current collaborator working on yes. No Pants in Tucson. Thank you. She was our amazing um, venue tech. You know, for those in the tour, the, the, the festival world, you know, you get assigned a venue, you get assigned a tech, you hope that they're going to take care of you and, and work with your stage manager to make sure the show goes smoothly. And she was fantastic uh, and said, you know, hey, if I ever come back to New York, I'm thinking about coming back. If I come back, I'll be in touch. And we're like, Great. Awesome. And then she showed up at auditions and we were overjoyed to be reconnected with her. And now she's working on the show. Very nice. Just, just invaluable that uh, your, your tech support, particularly, and you mentioned this on the festival circuit, because um, I am a, a playwright myself and my husband, David, and I wrote a play called Out the Flash that's been performed seven times, including multiple festivals, including the, um, uh, blah, 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 blah. what's our big festival out here? I've forgotten. Wait, you're God, at New York City August. Fringe. Fringe, that's right. Fringe. Fringe yeah. in NYC. Wow, my fringe. My my COVID brain, brain but, is real. Oh, yeah, it's like it's my brain is tapioca pudding anymore. I'm just oh, no, it's, it's crazy. So um <laughs> but, but you know. Oh yeah, you only typically have and the formula is usually like um you have something like how whatever your length of show is before, right before the show. And this is like one of the few times you get to go into the theater. Um, you have about twice that amount of time to mm-hmm. tech the show. And then you have to typically perform it for whoever is uh, your liaison with the festival so that they can clock it and they can tell you, they they can confirm that however long you said it was is actually how long it is. It's crazy. It really, it can, really is. It can make or break your show. And uh, we've been really fortunate in all of our festival touring to have had really lovely technicians who help us, you know, feel at home and, and make the work the best that we can. So we are grateful for that. Yeah, it's, it's really nice. It's great to have a good stage manager, too. When we took our show to Dublin, Ireland for the Dublin Gay Theatre Festival, we brought our original stage manager. And, boy, she just came in and took over. And I want this and move this light. And I want you to secure the – because it was one of those stages on platforms. I want you to secure the stage. And I just sat back in wonderment, like, oh, have fun. My husband, not so much because he performs the show. Um, also, I just wanted to say that um, uh, Melissa was on an episode, it's called the Me Too episode, and that's episode 61, where I brought together uh, a large panel of fema- female-identifying 
theater arts uh, professionals, and we discussed the Me Too, um, what was going on with Me Too and how it affected theater. And that's a show that I'm really proud of, and I thought all of you did such a marvelous job on that. So give that show a listen. Yeah, thank you, Sean. That was such an incredible panel that you pulled together and a really important conversation. And I'm I'm grateful to have been a part of that. Yeah, it's 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 extremely powerful and very, very enlightening. So okay, well let's let's get back to the topic at hand. Uh but before we do, uh can someone tell me the mission statement or the goal set for the anthropologists? Yeah, so the anthropologists we founded in 2008, and we are dedicated to making investigative theater that inspires action. So we devise plays about what's happening happening in the world right now. They are all built on research and source material that is activated through physical theater techniques. Uh, and we always have been, since our founding, women-led and just naturally uh, gravitating towards uplifting uh, women's voices that very often have not been heard or found their way into the theatrical canon. And that remains true today. And we're just always asking with every project, you know, how can we use source material and research to challenge our assumptions, to broaden the dominant narrative or break the dominant narrative, and using those archival materials to understand our present uh, a lot better? Artemisia's intent is such a, a, a like a mega example of that. It's it's um it was written pretty much on three different levels, which I love. I love like when people work with the time-space continuum. And Melissa, you are the playwright for that, right? Yeah. And so I want to clarify too, that we're a devised theater company, which means that it is a collaborative creation. Every show that play was really unique in that we were a group of five women uh, who were devising a solo show together. Uh, So the, the script that I helmed, along with our our dramaturg, Lindy Rosario, really resulted from all of the work that the five of us did in uh, the rehearsal studio, which at that point, you know, we had this amazing residency at Abrams Arts Center, which was really the the key to being able to create that work, along with the opportunity from Frigid. You know, I think when Mariah submitted the application, which is a lottery application, we we knew we wanted to tell a story about Artemisia Gentileschi, a 17th century Italian painter, and connect that to stories about um, women's representation in art today and uh, gatekeepers in the art world uh, and entertainment world. We, we did not realize how timely it would be because we submitted this show and got accepted uh, with a title and like what a 50 word synopsis um, before the Weinstein story yeah. even broke. Um, and so, and clearly we all had our personal um, connections to and stories to uh, women who had whose careers had been maybe stifled um, or challenged by male gatekeepers, uh, and it just it became a much more uh, common story to hear uh, as we started working on the show. And so we were using archival material 
for example, her paintings, uh, her um, letters that she wrote to patrons, and transcripts from a trial that she was a part of in 1612 that was uh, eerily reminiscent of uh, legal proceedings that we were hearing in 2017, 2018, while we were making it. Um, and now we find ourselves in the opposite scenario where we are working to make an ensemble play featuring five performers and we are all working individually in our own little private studios, AKA our apartments. Wow. So that's, that's, I would assume that's in response to the COVID-19 crisis where people are, are doing things separately, but together. Indeed. And we did start, uh, we did start rehearsing this project in July of 2019. Uh, so we did two workshops where we were together in July and then in November where we were together in the same room. Uh, and so I look fondly back on the rehearsal video from that time to remind myself like, oh yeah, Marissa, Alexandra, Mariah, you all shared the same physical space at one point, and that was so yeah. lovely. Uh, and then, uh, uh, you know, COVID happened, and as we all know, the world changed, but what didn't change was our commitment to the stories that we were trying to tell with this new play, No Pants in Tucson, and the fact that we are all creative makers uh, that just needed to continue working together. And thanks to the power of Zoom and the internet uh, and our iPhones and whatever other tools we had at home, we've, we've been continuing to devise the work, as you say, together but apart. Right. <laughs> yeah, so many people are doing that. In fact, uh, one of the projects I have written is a musical that I co-wrote with my collaborator, Leo Schwartz, who is in Chicago. And we decided to do five solo videos from the show. And they were done from, I don't know, like usually three or four different locations in three different states. Um, and and they, all this music was just put together. And it, there's sort of a bit of a piecemeal that goes on. And then hopefully somebody within your group is tech savvy enough to edit it all together. Is that, is that sort of what, you, what you're doing as well? Well, I will say, you know, in terms of when we when we turned over to digital devising and and everybody had to be making their own content on their own, it definitely uh, in, brought up hidden talents that we didn't know about, right? Or forced us to to learn or relearn technology. Um, China Far, who's not uh, with us today on the interview just became this master of editing videos on her iPhone in, in like a really sophisticated, exciting way. So that was really cool. iPhone? Yeah, she she's what? kind of amazing with that. Uh, and I, at one point, started to relearn GarageBand so that I could do a sound design piece to layer over a composition that Marissa had made. My own skills with um, iMovie are pretty limited, um, but that is that is going to be part of the next endeavor is uh, we do need to be expanding our team to welcome in people with those kind of um, digital storytelling skills, video editing skills, uh, because that is that is not going to go away. 
Right. <laughs> but but something you brought up, Sean, was that ability to like work across state lines, which has yeah. been really magical. So we were able to collaborate again with Lindy, who is now in Denver, Colorado. Uh, we brought on a phenomenal uh, intern over the summer, my Joycea Caesar, who's in Louisiana who's a young dramaturgy student. So she was doing dramaturgical work with us. Uh, and so that's been really, really awesome uh, to no longer uh, be confined by New York City in that way. It's made us learn. It's made us take off uh, the blinders and how we did theater before. And I think it's going to uh, provide us with a source of elevation for when, you know, after we're all vaccined and, and we get back into the way we used to do, to do theater, It's I think it's just going to enhance that a lot. Mm-hmm. So that's at least maybe my Pollyanna viewpoint of how to, you know, survive and get through it. Um, let's go back to that very, very first day of uh, when when everything shut down. But the, by the way, the day before, I saw an off-Broadway show and a Broadway show that night. And then all of a sudden, mm-hmm. the next day, I mean, no broad, no theater whatsoever at all. What was that day, that first day like um, in in your in your brains and your emotional systems? Uh, you know, definitely a lot of disbelief, especially because it was it was honestly just hard to wrap your mind around. I remember, or just a couple of days before the shutdown, I met Alexandra for lunch in the village. We had a delicious vegan lunch and we're brainstorming about actually that was the day that I started talking to Alexandra about like do you want to come on board as creative partner working on uh, programming and partnerships um, and that was you know really exciting uh, because Ale- Alexandra's in the acting ensemble but um, we're really trying to make sure that our administrative and producing process mirrors how we work as a, as a team so so we had an awesome lunch, dreaming big, um, not entirely aware of what was going to happen. And then Mariah, you and I met, I think you and I met the, was it the day before the shutdown or the day that Broadway was closed and we were like, oh man, we, it was before anything had closed, but I think everything happened that night, maybe like, mm. It was certainly the last time I took the subway. And yeah. then I think that night. That it was night already the, remember, eerie. Yeah. Yes, it was very eerie. They had started changing protocols at the coffee shop. And yeah, I think that night when I got home, the NBA shut down, followed by Broadway. Hmm. Wow. And, you know, we were, we were about to have a really busy spring. We were about to be, Mariah was going to be performing Artemisia's Intent as a reprise performance at the Estrogenius Festival at the Crane. And we were going to be hosting another one of our lectures and libations events. Uh, and then, I love that name though, by the way, I think it's great. <laughs> oh, they're, they're so much fun. I, I really hope that we can do them again because it's just all about um, bringing in people in our network and our community to, to tell stories and talk about amazing uh, women that we don't already know about. Uh, so, so hopefully we will find a way for lectures and libations to prevail. Um, 
but, but yeah, it was that, that critical moment of, I think, I think we're canceling everything. Um, and I, I don't know, we, we talk about how we look back on that week. It's just so surreal because we couldn't imagine at that point how, just how serious this, this was. And, you know, I think it was devastating for anyone in theater. I think we, especially in New York city in the theater community felt what was going to be happening way before any other sectors, because I would say 90% of my community, you know, is theater restaurant industry uh, or in teaching, teaching artists. I remember talking to a friend who had her show canceled um, and she said, but it's okay. I, you know, I sell my teaching artist gig. And then what was it like a week later or so that finally schools, schools closed. So we really felt it right away that our, everyone in our community was, was really struggling. Yeah. It was like, um, there was like a a very clear before and after. And uh, a lot of people who are in theater, I mean, they, it's, it's so much a part of their lives. If they're not making it or writing it, they're seeing it. Oh, and yeah. just to have that that uh, sort of theatrical lifeline or theater lifeline cut off was um, it was a bit of a grief process. Now, Alexandra, you were essentially coming into the anthropologists from what Melissa, from what you just said, knew at the time. What was it like for you when all of this went down the, the day of the announcement or the day after? How were you feeling about it and how did you cope? There's the part of um, working as the acting ensemble and how we had to operate um, from within our tiny little boxes um, and finding new ways to express ourselves uh, through the props that we have around us. Um, <laughs> one of the discoveries that uh I made was um, I can make uh, different kinds of modern day version puppets um, that I eventually used um, as part of our, our digital devising process. Um, And I got a lot of inspiration from how, you know, the other ensemble members worked um, from within their own homes, Um, the kind of music and editing um, and and use of space Um, like China Far um, has a pole in her in her living room. I think that's her living room, right? And, and she always uses that as part of, as part of her compositions. Um, and so it's like, if, if we had been in a rehearsal space, I feel like, you know, we would have never thought that we'd have a pole in our show. And yet, <laughs> um, <laughs> and yet that, that came about so beautifully. Um, and also, you know, my exploration with using paper to, to um to express to use that as like symbolism and metaphor um to to express what what you know I want to say um and then there's the part um of working as uh the creative partner of 
programming and partnerships. Um, and, you know, Melissa and I talk about how to turn, for instance, lectures and libations into an online conversation where we can still have the same, um, um, atmosphere of communal gathering, um, eating and drinking together, um, even within our own spaces and how, how we can do that. So, um, we're very excited about sharing those, um, in the, in the, in the next month. That's great. One of the things that um, I, I do occasionally is I do the I do backstage interviews for the New York Innovative Theater Awards. I didn't do it last year because my husband was up for an award, so I was essentially arm candy that year. But anyways, uh, one of the things that that when I interview these artists as they're coming backstage, they they talk about how when they have limitations, they get really like genius creative. You have to. When you don't, you know, when you're working in a small theater and you're trying to make it work, ideas just start popping into your head that you would have never thought of. So I'm glad that you emphasized that point, that it really made you have to just sort of think out of the box. I know that's a, an old cliche, but it's essentially what you're doing. Um, so that's terrific. Marissa, we can't see you, but we can hear you. How did you feel um, the day after or the day of the shutdown? What did that do to you uh, mentally and emotionally? Yeah, sure. So I um, was directing my first show um, over at Play Arts Horizons Theater School in uh, NYU. And it was March 10th, I remember this day, and it was my last rehearsal. And my mom was like, you need to come to Long Island right now. And so I just packed that night. And that was my last time um, taking any sort of public transportation to this day. Um, and I know for me, I had been thinking about um, what does it mean to not really create in live spaces anymore with people, but more specifically for theater, we're now removing this crucial character that is the audience. Um, and so trying to reshape how we're interacting with them through virtual theater, something that I'm thinking about. Um, and I think the way that that's manifested through anthropologists is at least per, perhaps we're not in the same space as our audience, but we can definitely empower them. Um, and I, I think we're definitely taking advantage of this new format of zoom and film. Um, it's, it's interesting because I know mentally I was definitely, um, frustrated because I like to move my body. I like to move and groove. And it's hard to do that now in my brother and sister's bedroom. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. With stuffed animals and Barbie dolls and Barbie uh, doll houses everywhere. So just, but also remembering that I can take advantage of being in technically a rehearsal space that has maybe eight rooms that I wouldn't have been provided in a traditional rehearsal space. I remember on the first rehearsal, I was taking pictures in um, my mock uh, gown next to my sink or next to my um, washer and dryer. And I wouldn't have been able to do that um, in any New York City rehearsal space. Um, so yeah, I think now I'm creating theater with the lens of a filmmaker, which is interesting, um, where uh, 
definitely uh, reframing this new, this already uh, interesting frame that we have in theater and putting it into a four by three aspect ratio is <laughs> essentially what's happening. Um, yeah. So, so it's interesting to compartmentalize and compact um, this very movement based ensemble into this new um, way of creating theater. Well, so it, it, it feels like everybody sort of got their, their brain tickled. And, and, and I would imagine if you were like me, there was a, a, like a couple of days where there was like a mental shutdown, oh, honestly, because yeah. I, I was like, oh, this I should. And I've, I've switched to, Sean, do your writing, do something every day, uh, get, get used to it. Um, bless you, whoever that was. That was my husband. I'm sorry <laughs> I'm not on mute. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. No, it's fine. <laughs> he's That's he's a loud sneezer as, as as opposed to me, who is like I'm one of those people who sneezes a hundred times. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Um, Marissa, you mentioned Playwrights Horizons. Yeah, Playwrights Horizons Theater School. Uh, now, remember earlier when I asked you to clarify your whether you were a Marissa or a Marisa, and I said I know a Marisa. Her name is Marisa Riggs. I believe she's in yes. Playwrights Horizons as well. There we go. She's she's a great lady. She stage managed a play called Stupid Fucking Bird that my husband did in Long Island, I think, and now she's part of my writing group. So she's she's great. That's why I asked. So we know the same Marisa. We know the same Marisa. You know, I, I had a feeling, I had a feeling and thanks for clarifying. Right. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. She's, she's, I haven't seen her in a while, but uh, she's, she's an, an excellent writer. Very, very good. So there we go. Um, Sean, something you said just about that, like the, the mental shutdown, I think like I, I definitely responded that way of, we have that adage, the show must go on. And, you know, like Marissa, I was about, I was going into tech for a show that I was directing with up theater company in Northern Manhattan. Uh, and just could not comprehend what a shutdown would mean. Of course, we've never lived through that, but also as the, as theater makers, especially when you're a director or a producer, no matter how many curveballs are thrown at you, your job is to like respond, adapt, and like keep everyone motivated and keep going. And and that was a really hard moment for me when I realized, wow, all of my instincts are not only wrong right now, but I I I definitely have moments now of like, wow, I I I needed to be more, I needed to care more for my ensemble. Um, that it wasn't just like we put in all this time and, and we were so close to doing a show and we can't stop now, but now we can comprehend the fullness of the public health crisis, of course, that was hard then. Um, so that was just like really hard to grapple with. Like, wow, are my instincts as a theater maker totally useless right now? Um, 
you know, eventually a few weeks into it, I think we all had to like find our ways to reacclimate, but that certainly has been a mental shift for me as an artistic director, as well as a creator of now every project that we're going to do, the question starts first and foremost with the artists. Are the artists safe and are the artists being taken care of and, and are we meeting their needs in order to stay creative uh, and work? But, but that, um, that safety has to come first. And that right. will be You're, the game changer for producing as we go forward. Exactly. You're my, my third show on this series. And the other two shows said exactly the same thing. The first thing we did was focus on the people, um, the artists that will fall into place, but um, like one of the um, um, one of the theater ensembles that I um, interviewed said, we just started doing phone trees like every day. You know, someone would call this person or this person or this person, or or communicate with text or what have you. Do you have a roof over your head? Do you have food? Do you have money? Do you have all of the things to survive? And mm-hmm. I think that that's, that's nice because when it comes down to it, we're all human beings and we all need that first. And if you don't have that, that can really, well, it can, for some people it motivates their creativity, but most people, they do. They just kind of shut down and just wonder. It's, it's, it's very difficult to be creative under those circumstances. So taking care of the person first is smart. Absolutely. And by the way, you're all leaders of this group, of this team. And that is um, what you're doing is displaying leadership qualities. Leaders are tested and then they overcome and then they figure it out and then they do it. And sometimes that might be me doing it, I don't know, for five to 10 minutes a day, but at least you've gone in and you've touched it and you're caring. So bravo to all of you. That's very nice. Thank you for recognizing that. Of course. Yeah. I, 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 again, Third, third team and the third team to say the same thing. And one of those teams is from Dublin, Ireland. So just so you know, it's all over. Um, how have you, and you touched on this a little bit, but how have you adjusted your season, your systems, your style of performance? Because I know it can be, you have your own style. During COVID, while still staying true to your mission statement and core principles, what are some of the adjustments that you're making? Go a little bit more into detail about that well coming off of what we were just talking about there there was that um need to be checking in with everybody on the team to make sure to your point that everyone um was safe had food had a a safe place to be uh and then um you know those those like mental health check-ins that was really important we we had planned for a spring workshop that was happening in tandem with a partnership with Hofstra University, which then, of course, as soon as the university shut down, um, that, you know, everything had to be recalibrated. Because we had already done fundraising for uh, that workshop, we said, okay, we're going to move forward. We're going to turn this into a digital uh way of working uh, and we're going to keep paying the artists. And, and actually I, I did work to, to try and uh, increase the stipends. Now I'm not trying to say that we're paying a living wage 
because we're not there yet. Uh, but it was very important, especially for people whose all, all their other forms of income had gone away, that we were at least able to provide people with a weekly stipend um, and, and paying people for their artistry. Um, and, you know, the other thing that, that the, the focus had to shift from performance mode which we had been in and which was very exciting to be touring Artemisia's intent uh, and, and meeting new audiences outside of New York city. Um, so we had to shift that of course, and then really focus on internal work. Now, part of that was to Marissa's point, like how can we connect with audience members? Uh, and we started doing a, a series on uh, Zoom called Zoom and Tell, um, where we're letting the audience into the process a little bit. But but and that and that came after the devising workshop. Um, but the other big shift for us was focusing internally on our organization and on our company. Um, what? How is the way that we're producing? the work successful and, and where does it need to improve? Uh, we have been doing a lot of training, uh, taking trainings and having a lot of conversations around anti-racism and really trying to implement anti-racist policies within our company and looking at the places again, where we've been successful and other places where, uh, we, we haven't been. Uh, and I think one of the beautiful things about, um, this time period is that so many more professional development opportunities have come up uh, on Zoom. Uh, so we put a budget together to pay for people to take workshops and trainings. Um, and we're going to be continuing that as well. But really um, having conversations with the creative team around No Pants in Tucson about not just, you know, we say that we use a horizontal devising process and that everyone can collaborate and that everyone's voice is valuable. And we brought in a facilitator to help us have a really candid conversation about, are we living up to those values? Is that true? Are people feeling like their voices are being heard? Um, I don't know, Alexandra, Marissa, Mariah, if any of you want to, to, to speak to that part of the process. Yeah, I um, was going to say that I know as a young artist, I'm especially grateful for a lot of the internal assessments and workshops and trainings that I've been able to participate um, in as part of being in the uh, anthropologist. Um, because a few years ago, I don't think this would have been accessible to someone my age. Um, so learning this this early in my career allows me to unlearn practices that have made spaces I was in harmful um, and can inform the way that I'm collaborating with um, other artists and, and making sure that those spaces are um, safe, welcoming, um, and, and inclusive. That's excellent. Alexandra, do you want to comment on that? Um, yeah, one of the, um, the highlights of all of these, uh, workshops, um, that have come up is, um, 
through the anthropologists, uh, I was able to take a workshop on praxis, uh, which is a methodology that was created by Paulo Freire uh, in Brazil. Um, and he used this to work with the people in the favelas um, who are affected uh, by poverty and racism and other social inequities. Um, and the workshop was uh, carried out by Nicole Lawson. And so um, Melissa and I, uh, I took that workshop and, and then I was able to see the end product um, of, of uh, the dancers, um, of her collaborators performing what they had worked on. Um, and so I feel like that and a lot of the other conversations that we've had internally as a company um, forced me to ask questions within my own art practice, whether um, the way in which we are producing the work, the process to get to that end product reflects the message that we are also saying with, with our final performance. Hmm. That's excellent. That's a, a lot of theory that you're coming into and um, based upon what I know about the anthropologists, I think that's that's fuel for uh, for your pr- productions, for your writing, for your directing, for your ov- the overall style of the theater group and ensemble. So that's awesome. Now, uh, I kind of want to talk a little bit about the physicality of your your productions. Now, I know that when I saw Art- Artemisia's Intent, Mariah was doing things that would snap my back probably about every three seconds, climbing through frames and back bends. And I just remember thinking, wow, this is, this is so beautifully done. It was almost like choreography. Would you agree with that, Mariah? Yes, definitely. <laughs> that, that, that show is totally choreographed with room for, um, improvisation for sure. Um, but yeah, being being confined to our Zoom boxes has definitely made physicality um, a little different. But I will say something that I've been trying to embrace, and I think all of us have, is, okay, how do we use this Zoom box for a different kind of physical vocabulary? Like, what can you actually, what, what does this confinement offer you to what you were saying before about how our boundaries can set us free? Um, and sort of using that I, early on, we were doing sort of a, a little visit with Artemisia on the internet. We, it was sort of like our first version, a beta run of a Zoom and Tell. And we were discovering, oh, if I come really close to the camera, what does that do? If you pop out of the box, what does that do? So I think that's something I've been really thinking about rather than thinking of these boxes as um, a drag thinking them of, of us and one more tool in our, in our toolboxes right now. Do you feel like, uh, um, that, that this has sort of leveled the playing field for everyone? Like we all only have so many options now. It doesn't matter how much money anybody has. We have pretty much this. And then there's only, there's one other opportunity that I want to talk about, but I feel like it's leveled the playing field for all these different, um, levels of theater. Do, do you feel the same way? 
You know, I actually want to like call back to a conversation that Marissa and I had. I don't know if you remember Marissa a while back. I was interviewing her and we were talking about or Marissa was talking about access and how suddenly all these large theater companies who before said that they, they couldn't offer free theater were suddenly releasing um, digital footage of plays and suddenly theater became accessible to so many people. And Marissa, you jump in and, and, and correct me, but I think you said something like, I'm going to be watching everybody to see if we uphold these new things that we learn and we keep them as part of, of our theatrical experience now. Yeah, you know, something that you said, Mariah, about or in that conversation about there being more access for audience members, I think is is really exciting in terms of being able to, you know, view content from all over. Uh, And I think to a certain extent for artists, it was a way to have a platform that is almost free or very low cost, certainly we were able to redirect some of our funds from instead of paying for rehearsal space, which is always our biggest cost, we could redirect that to uh, artist stipends. Um, I, I do personally feel a little bit overwhelmed, like now as we get into this next phase of theater at home, that there are a lot of technologies out there and I'm not such a tech savvy person in terms of platforms and um, ways to be sharing the digital work. Uh, I'm really inspired by venues like uh, Frigid that they really early on started using StreamYard and have been producing an incredible amount of shows. And so I think for us, like our focus has been on keeping uh, our creative process going and continuing to build content and to build the show uh, so that when we are ready to share our work, that we're, we want to partner with those organizations and venues who do have the technology um, to help us get, get our work out there. Um, But a cool thing has been using something like zoom to share our process with our audience in a way that we weren't able to before. Like we are always joking about, can we, can we footnote the play live so that people understand which parts were really like actual events or quotes or, you know, found text, whatever it is. And now in the zoom intels, we actually can do that where we're showing our research talking about our process and then sharing a work in progress rehearsal video uh, and getting feedback from our community that's really smart um one of the things if, if you go and you watch the videos that we did for my musical running um, um it's i did a how-to video on how we did it all and everybody sure. loved it. They thought it was really, they're like, oh my gosh, how did you do this? Because you don't realize, you know, the singer yeah. sings it with just a, a very minor audio in their ear. And then an engineer takes over in another state. And um, it, it's pretty crazy. Now, what I want to talk about is the outdoors a little bit. Because a lot of theater companies are moving their productions outdoors. There's There was, a, I don't know if you any of you know this, but there was a production of Jesus Christ Superstar in London recently. And they did the whole thing. They did it at Regent's Park Theater, which is an open air theater in London. And it was all COVID friendly. 
The director rehearsed each, each person behind plexiglass. Everyone wore masks. It was uh, blocked to be uh, a COVID friendly with um, uh, social distancing and things like that. And that's, that was, that went off very, very well. Now I know that if I'm not mistaken, you did a production of this sinking Island outdoors, correct? Yes, that is correct. Uh, in and fall 2018, we toured the show to six different locations in Northern Manhattan. Are you, are you trying to conceptualize some of your other shows to be able to perform outdoors? Because that is one of the, the more safe environments as long as we follow uh, the restrictions. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, you know, that, that show in particular, because it was, especially because it was um, dealing with uh, rising sea levels and climate change science. Um, actually, the final performance was done in, oh my gosh, I'm completely forgetting the name of the place that it was up in Inwood. Um, and we, we were right on the Hudson. It'll come to me later. Uh, and it was very powerful to see that show that where, where water was a huge element to have water as the backdrop. Um, and certainly doing those kind of shows does teach you about the realities of performing outside all of the things that you cannot predict or need extra resources for in terms of sound, et cetera. We've, we've been tossing around some ideas of how we might do some projects outside. Right now, our core ensemble is all in very different uh, geographical locations mm-hmm. uh, and people have different um different needs in terms of staying quarantined or staying sheltered in place because of, you know, family and who they're living with. And, and so we've really tried to not, um, that's not a barrier for us to creating. I think at some point we will consider outdoor performances right now. We're focused on working digitally so that we can be as safe as possible so that people can be creating in their own environment. We're going to bring stuff together. We are plotting and planning our first public digital piece that is going to go live on October 24th, which will coincide with early voting in New York City. And this is kind of an offshoot of No Pants in Tucson that, again, wouldn't have happened um, without uh, this experience, that we're now planning a digital uh, experience that will work in parallel with the full production. Excellent. So it really is the, 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 the plan it, it feels like is based upon the evolution of the solution. Like mm, when we get I to love that. Do you? Yeah. <laughs> the you. evolution of the solution. That's great. Well, Mariah just said something. It was our boundaries can set us free. Thank you for verbalizing what I was trying to say in, 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 in a minute long monologue. That was really, really nice. I wrote that down. So Look at us coming up with catchphrases. I love it. Yeah. Awesome. Um, can each one of you tell me uh, what your vision looks like for the anthropologist once we emerge from COVID? How do you, what, in your mind, with what you know and what you've learned, what's the vision of that? Who wants to kick that off? <laughs> just a little itty bitty question, right, Sean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, just, just you know, just just 
It wasn't your script outline, so. I know, I know. Um, you know what? I, I, I will go, I'll take the first bite at that, but I also realized that we didn't give a full description of this new show that we've been teasing, that we've been working on. Um, no Pants in Tucson. Sorry. That, no, that's okay. We'll, we'll table that question and, and please go ahead and, and well, talk it, it, it will have to do, it is driving our impulses of moving forward. So, cool. so No Pants in Tucson is a play that uh, takes its inspiration from a long history of gender oppressive state laws in the United States. Uh, and we are specifically focused on uh, anti-cross-dressing laws, uh, which prevented, uh, colloquially prevented women from wearing pants. Now, these are real laws that were started in the mid-1800s. And actually, these are the same kind of city ordinances that were uh, cited as reasons for police to be going into Stonewall to uh, kick people out of the the gay bars in New York City. Um, So, you know, we're looking at these old, historical, archaic laws uh, that oppress people on the basis of their gender and asking, like, what does it mean for today? And drawing a line between a law that says someone may not, not dress uh, as the, the opposite of their sex, uh, drawing a line from that to the attempts in 2017 to be um, banning transgender people from using the bathrooms of the gender that they identify with. Um, no, that's in, that's in Tucson, right? So one of the one of the laws that we found uh, was about you know no cross dressing in Tucson, Arizona. But the truth is that these laws were all over the country, uh, and many of them were not struck down until like the 1970s. And we still, of course, are feeling the residual effects of that. Um, and uh, so, you know, we started brainstorming this piece in 2018, started having conversations about it in 2019, and then moved into a rehearsal process in, in July 2019, just to give you an idea of the timeline that we often, but not always, create our work in. Uh, and so we're very fortunate to receive uh, major funding from the New York City Women's Fund. Um, it was announced nice. to us just before the shutdown. Um, so it is tremendously exciting because it does mean it guarantees that we are going to be able to pay our artists for the creation of this work and, and to launch this. I still believe, so in terms of the future, I still desperately believe in a future that includes live performance and what that, what format that will take, you know, we remain flexible. Maybe it is outdoor performances. Maybe it's in a theater with limited audiences or live streamed to audiences at home. Uh, And I, but I think also that having digital online uh, experiences are going to stay with us for the foreseeable future as an add-on for people who can see us in person uh, and for people that aren't able to join us in person. Um, and I think access also was a big conversation for us. You know, Mariah and I and Tess are all parents of young kids and just thinking about, oh, like we didn't have to pay for babysitters to get to rehearsal. You know, it also means that we're kind of like 
splitting our headspace sometimes because the kids are running in and out of the rehearsal room as it were. Um, but it also means that, you know, I could take a lot of training without having to do deal with who's going to watch the kids and how long is the subway ride to get to this class, for example. Uh, and so that, that's just one example of how access, the access conversation has changed and has evolved and become more inclusive. And that will definitely be a part of our work going, going forward. For us, the most important thing is to be uplifting voices that have not yet been heard, which was one thing that I think we, we heard a lot of response about in the Zoom and tells with our, with our Patreon members. Um, where people were saying, wow, I, I never knew that story. I never knew about this woman. I never knew about Dr. Mary Walker, who, um, one, who was believed in dress reform and dressed wearing pants and was arrested several times for wearing pants, even though she's the only winner of the Medal of Honor from her service in the Civil War. Uh, and so I think like there are lots of examples of audiences being uh, excited about the stories that we're sharing, which just tells us we need to keep doing what we're doing and just find new avenues to share it. Right. Um, I've interviewed the uh, New York Neo Futurists. For those of you who are not familiar with them, they have a very, very immediate tactile theater experience and it's fast and they're in the audience. And, um, and, and so they've had to make a lot of adjustments as well, mm-hmm. but they're looking at this as an opportunity. They're going back into the theater when it's safe to where can we actually access more people because they're becoming more acclimated to mm-hmm. being on I mean, I didn't even know what Zoom was until COVID. I was still, you know, working off of, you know, FaceTime and uh, the other uh, apps. So there, it sounds like you're accessing as a group. How can this help us once we get back to normal or the whatever the new normal is. So that's mm-hmm. sensational. Um, Alexandra, would you like to give us your vision? Did it put you on the spot? I, I feel like it's hard to follow Melissa's answer because I don't even have an answer prepared. Um, that's okay. <laughs> a lot of people, a lot of people stall when I ask them this stuff because there's a lot of people who are like, I'm going to interview somebody who in the, in the next couple of weeks is like, I don't have any answers, but would you be willing to have the conversation with me? So if you don't have any answers or it's too tough, it's, it's okay to say that. I feel like this whole um, Zoom stream yard, um, what's the other one? Crowd, crowdcast. Um, Everything made me think about access in terms of like ticket prices, in terms of locations. Like if, if a majority of theater shows happen in Midtown Manhattan, um, can people who live deep in Brooklyn or like, you know, um, way up in the Bronx or deep in Queens access those places thinking about what time they get off work and then how long it takes to get there by train. Um, uh, in terms of audience representation, like our zoom and tell audiences are made up of 
the ensemble's um, circle of of friends and families and colleagues and collaborators and acquaintances. But then when we don't have this kind of access, like what does the audience look like? Are we performing for a group of just traditional theater audiences? Um, Thinking about, you know, access for people who are differently abled. Um, So I think all of these things uh, are things to think about for the future. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I'm definitely thinking about those. Um, That's great. That's excellent. It's excellent because what you're saying is how can we take what we do and bring it to more people who might struggle to get to the theater because of being differently abled or uh, childcare or just, just other things that they can't, other things that, that, that keep them from being able to do that. How can we bring this theater to them? You know, it's like the old saying, what is it? Um, uh, if I think it was Greer Garson who said something to the tune of, if your ship isn't coming in for you, get in a boat and row out there and meet the ship. And that's an, an excellent uh, initiative. And is that sort of like, am I, am I summarizing what you're saying right? well, one, correctly? One, one funny thing that I read recently, um, and, and this is not supposed to be like a serious thing, but I, I found it very fascinating. I read that, um, what was it? Opera was made... Uh, by the by the rich people for the rich people film was made by the rich people for the poor people theater was made by the poor people for the rich people um, and social media was made by the poor people for the poor people so I feel like this this like sharing theater online that where it's accessible by everyone has really democratized theater where otherwise you know, uh, people say, oh, you know, representation on stage, and yet the audience members are still traditional theater audiences when you think about theater and opera and these, like, uh, very, like, fancy, uh, like, art spaces. Right. Um, and, like, I think it was Deep Tran who wrote in American Theater Magazine, I might get this wrong, Um like I might get the right or wrong, but I read it on American theater magazine where they said that if, if there's a lot of representation on stage in terms of diversity, but the audience members don't reflect that, then it's kind of like a zoo where people go to watch, you know, these like exotic quote unquote exotic, uh, beings perform. Um, and and so you know, like it, this whole this whole democratization of of theater and storytelling has, um, you know. Yeah, it feels like you're you're um, you're you're sort of figuring out the the various classes, if you will, and how you can edify everyone as opposed to, you know, all these different systems, and and it's sort of like I said, leveling the playing field, and that's great. By the way, can I steal democratized theater? Because that's awesome. May I? May I use that? I, I will. I will always try to reference you as the quote because that is an awesome, 
Awesome phrase. That's that's great. It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Um, and so much of what Alexandra is working on it will be to that endeavor in terms of partnerships and thinking about, like, who... Who are the audiences that we want to have engaging in our work and and who do we want to provoke conversation with? Uh, so that's very much at the forefront thinking about what non-theater uh, cross-sector partners we want to build conversations with to see how we can collaborate with them and how we can share our work with them and how they can inform what we're doing as well. Very, very cool. Marissa, what about you? What does your vision for the anthropologist look like as we reemerge? So I have two things. I'm going to hop on the accessibility train um, because I, I do feel like access in the theater is the, one of the best things that has come out of this pandemic um, for artists. Um, where there's access for me, there's opportunity and opportunity is really the only thing that separates me from the next person. And that's something that I always try to remember. Um, it, it's a humbling thing to me. Um, so I, I know that we as the anthropologists are really keen in on accessibility for those that might otherwise not be able to partake in live theater, whether that's due to different abilities, income, childcare, transportation costs. And then this is something that Alexander was touching on um, is that, um, representation or the lack there of being a deterrent from not going. And I think with this new, uh, th- this new, um, notion of accessibility in the theater has really uplifted, um, marginalized, uh, communities of artists to create their own work. Um, and, and it's, it's super exciting to me when I'm on Facebook and I see, maybe 20 posts a day asking for um, BIPOC collaborators. That That is something that did not happen um, maybe even five months ago. So that's just really um, exciting to me um, because I, I know that um, a lot of theater companies say that they're for the people. And when I look at them and the productions that they make and who's on their boards, I'm like, the people is definitely not me. Um, and I think that the anthropologist, um, is definitely for the people internally and externally. Um, we're not seeing the same traditional demographic of New York city theater patrons, um, with our work. Um, although we're, we're definitely inviting them because I think they definitely need to, uh, know, know about the work that we're making and the people of history that we're highlighting, um, they're not our only focus. Um, and, and I feel like people that identify with my demographic feel um, appreciated in, in the work that we do. Um, the, second, the second thing is that we're definitely, what, what I see for the anthropologists is that we're definitely um, implementing more anti-racist theater practices. Um, even, even before um, we had these trainings, I felt like um, 
for me uh, as a black artist that the space is already implementing it. Um, we, we just didn't necessarily have a name for it maybe, but it was definitely still there, which I'm very happy about. Um, so I know that um, this summer or within the past few weeks, um, China and I and Melissa and Mariah took part of Nicole and Brewer's anti-racist theater workshop, um, which focused on how theater companies and organizations can implement anti-racist theater practices through their ethos, um, support systems, practice, repair, um, and different aspects like that. Um, really not just looking at solely the mission, but what are actions that we can do to in- implement anti-racist theater practices. Um, and, and so being a part of that um, as an internal assessment was great. And I know we're going to continue working with our anti-racist theater practice um, this upcoming month with the Joy Jackson Initiative, which is founded by Gabrielle Jackson, who's an um, activist and singer and artist. Um, and basically, I, I work with the Joy Jackson Initiative, and the mission of the organization is to uplift and create a safe space for BIPOC artists um, in theater spaces by providing these arts organizations with the tools that they need to assess and reassess how they might be um, perpetuating systemic racism in their organizations. And so we're part of their second beta phase of their assessment, which will, which is a very in-depth process of looking at um, of organizations answering questions as to how they are functioning. That's great. Um, I, I love that you're all working on on a lot of the groundwork and just taking this opportunity to to learn more and and sort of adding angles and and uh, just just different points of view for the anthropologists. I know that's always been such a large goal of yours, and it's it's like saying you. Know, look, there's more to this than, than even we know. And you are opening yourself up to saying, we focus on this, but we, we can learn more always. And you're taking this time to do that. That is a very, very productive use of your time as we get through this. So, you know, kudos to you. Now, I know that um, when I lived in Los Angeles, uh, I lived in Los Angeles up until about five years ago, my husband and I, there are a lot of, of things that theater competes with. It competes with TV. It competes with childcare. It competes with parking. It competes with other theater. And, and that is the same out here in, in New York, not with not too, not as much of an extent, mostly because you have to drive to get to a theater in Los Angeles. So, which I guess you have to do here, but there's a lot of competition and, and hopefully this, this helps to sort of ebb that a little bit. Um, so that, that's just, that's just my philosophy. Now, Mariah, do you think Shiloh will let you have the last word on this question? Mm-hmm. We'll see. He, I'm gonna, I think he just said he, yes. I think he said yes. We'll see. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Everyone gave such beautiful answers, so I'm going to give a, a, a like, myopic answer. 
And that is post COVID, we will have a lot of hugging and a lot of dancing in a rehearsal room and it will be wonderful. And that's what I'm excited about. I miss everybody dearly. I miss um, sharing space and I know we're going to get there. And that is in our future. Mega, mega dance parties. That's an excellent answer. I, I know so many people were, were in, in denial of that a little bit because we're just trying to get through our day. But I can, I can tell you the very, very last person, besides my husband, who I'm very fortunate to have, but who I, I hugged. And uh, I don't know if any of you remember the very last person that you hugged that's outside of your, your quarantine area, but I do. And um, I, it, it, it's very sad to think about that, but you know, it's, it's, I think that's, I think that's great. That's such a nice, uh, I just, I love that. That's left me a bit speechless, which, which as you can see, doesn't happen very often, but that's part of my job. So, um, before we go, please tell our audience where they can find the anthropologist on social media and keep up with your plans for the present and future. If you have one address, like a website that will take everybody everywhere, it's that's, that's really good to know. Sure. Well, our online presence is at www.theanthropologists.org. And that's where you can find everything that we're up to. You can find links to all our social media stuff. We're most often on Facebook or Instagram. We also have an amazing community of supporters friends, co-conspirators who have joined us on Patreon. And for those who may not know Patreon, uh, it is a platform in which people, anyone can pledge monthly support to the artists that they love. So you could be a member of our community for as little as $2 a month. And for that, you get invitations to the Zoom and Tell and uh, a pod, a mini podcast that Mariah started uh, and all kinds of other content. And you really get to see behind the scenes and give us feedback on what we're, what we're creating. Um, and we're constantly thinking of, of new ways to, to build that uh, community and make that community stronger. Um, so you can check us out there as well. Uh, but you should uh, stay ready for something exciting that's going to launch on October 24th. You'll see it on social media and you might see it in select places around the city. Even though it's going to be digital, there are going to be surprises as to how you might learn about uh, this next project. Very cool. And I have to say, your website is very comprehensive. It's really easy to understand oh, and good. use, and it's it's got links to everything. And um, um, I loved it. I was like, wow, you know, somebody who does my own website, like, wow, this who does this? This is amazing. I need to hire this person here. So oh, thank you. We can share website design tips and how often we fight with Wix.com. <laughs> well, in, in this in this day and, and age, you know, we're all learning how to use all of these programs and um, it's, it's, 
I don't know, every day it's something for me. I don't know about you guys, but every single day it's like, okay, how do I do this on Final Draft? Because I have to do this. On, how do I do, do this on Final Cut Pro? And it's crazy. Well, so. well, you know, Sean, even with Zoom, because we used to, we were using Zoom pre-pandemic for some company meetings, again, because we were like, it's it's so much easier to be able to be meeting in this format instead of all of us trying to find a mutually sufficient coffee shop and doing babysitters and all that. So we were a little bit accustomed to that, but there's still fun tricks and things to figure out with Zoom. So every day we're learning something new. Um, there's always always adventures to be had on every platform. Well, you teach me how to do my website, and I'll teach you how to use Final Cut Pro so you don't have to Deal. edit Deal. your movies on it. your phone. <laughs> Which it only took me two years to learn. So uh, Easy but, peasy. You know, right, yeah. Again, it's just like doing a little tiny itty-bitty chunk of it every single time you're challenged. And there's mm-hmm. some days where I'm like, I'm just going to have to think about this for for the day and, and leave it to tomorrow. Then I go back to my favorite thing, which is watching cartoons. But that's just me. Everyone okay. has to have a happy place. Indeed, absolutely. Um, well, thank you so much for being with us, anthropologists. I just really enjoyed this conversation. Um, you're all amazing, and I wish you many broken legs, um, which I say with caution to Mariah, as we navigate our way to a better future for theater. It, this has just been such a, an, an inspiring conversation, and I want you to know that if you listen to the other two podcasts, there's so many threads from different types of companies in different parts of the world. And uh, I just think that you're doing a, a, a fabulous, phenomenal job as you always do it. And I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. And thank you for finding a new iteration, inventing a new iteration of your podcast series and for including us. And, and you are part of that access and, and reaching new audiences. So thank you. I appreciate that. That's that's very kind of you to say. Well, folks, the proverbial 11 o'clock number has been sung and the bows have been taken, so it's time to lower the curtain. Once again, a big thanks to the anthropologists. Weren't they sensational? They always are. They're still one of my favorite guests. You can find more episodes of Your Program Is Your Ticket at Facebook.com. Your Program Is Your Ticket. I'm on Twitter at, at Program Ticket. The website is YourProgramIsYourTicket.com. Real easy to uh, remember. Uh, your program is your ticket is on iTunes and SoundCloud, as well as very, very, uh, a lot of different um, platforms are picking it up just randomly. So you can find me pretty much anywhere on, on the internet. If you type in your program is your ticket, John Chandler. Um, and I'm now on this uh, theater platform called Thespi and it's uh, ran out of the UK and uh, they feature shows and podcasts and not to brag, but I've been in like the top five of the podcasts for a while. So um, I guess they really like me in, in London, which I love London. So that's great. And I appreciate what they've done and the fact that they've given me this opportunity. So go join their website. Um, you'll, you'll love it. It's great. It's, it's, it too is very comprehensive. Um, FYI, I appreciate all good ratings, reviews, and subscriptions. So if you're on any of that, please, please do that for me. It always elevates my profile. A quick thanks to North, North Coast NYC, the hip-hop improv theater ensemble that does my intro and outro music. You might be hearing it right now if I'm, you know, on, on my game for editing. If not, you'll hear it very soon. 
Folks, take a little time to visit theater websites and see what they have to offer as we transition through and out of this pandemic. Watch their content, give them all great ratings and reviews, and most importantly, donate, donate, donate. Uh, Melissa talks about grants and things like that, but the, the quickest way to, to funds to keep these theater groups going is to donate to them. They, um, they could, everyone could use a hand right now. And even if it's just uh, like Melissa said, a couple dollars a month, it's, it's something. Sometimes that makes a difference between whether a theater group, particularly the ones that I feature, um, stay open or have to close. And we don't want that to happen. We want them to stay open. So donate, donate, donate. Thanks everyone for listening. Until our next show, so long theater people and Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.